that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. From Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What is Christian hope? I ask this on All Saints Day because it is not often that we think of the saint as primarily a person of hope. We think of them as having great faith, great holiness of life, deep insight into the things of God, wonderful miracles maybe. But what about hope? How do the saints show us the virtue of hope? And what exactly is that hope? Paul writes to the Ephesians and constantly hones in on this question of hope. Later in this letter, he will write to those Christians about their former life. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a way to end that statement. Without having no hope, and without God in the world. A friend of mine constantly says that all of us should imagine our lives, what they would be like if God had not drawn us to Himself, if we were not Christians. It's a wonderful exercise because for most of us, though we don't often think of it, we are aware of incredible grace. Paul is here reminding these Christians of what they were, because what he's reminding them is what they are. They were separated, aliens, strangers. They had no communion with Jesus Christ, no share in the covenant promises of God, no membership in the holy nation. These were Gentile converts, and you may remember that it was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 that some itinerant Jewish exorcists sons of the high priest, were going about casting out demons and saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Can you imagine that? Jewish exorcists roaming the countryside, casting out demons in the name of Jesus, the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And in one case, a demon responded, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize But who the heck are you? (laughs) The Scriptures don't say heck. I said heck. The man, we're told, the demoniac man, jumped on these exorcists, overpowered them, and threw them out of the house, wounded and naked. He had somehow managed to strip them all of their clothing. What this leads to, ironically, is the name of Jesus being extolled among the people. It shows those around that the paganism which they've been engaged in is actually a kind of nudity. The emperor has no clothes. Jesus is extolled among the people. Those who had books of magic and spells burned them in public. 50,000 pieces of silver worth. And if you wonder how much 50,000 pieces of silver are worth, they're worth a whole lot more than your grandmother's silver. They're worth something like $5.5 million in today's dollars. 
So these are people who are not only alienated, who were not only alienated, strangers, and hopeless, a people without God in the world, but they are a people who had turned away from the occult to confess their sins, to become believers, to be joined to Christ. And so in the first chapter, Paul reminds them of what they were. He reminds them of what they are now by reminding them of what they were. They are now blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They are now chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. They are predestined for adoption. They are blessed with glorious grace. They have redemption through the blood of Jesus. They have the forgiveness of trespasses. They have had the riches of grace lavished upon them. All wisdom and insight. They have had the mystery of God's will made known to them. They have obtained an inheritance. They have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of their inheritance, until they are to acquire possession of it. And it is this last item that Paul refers directly to hope. These people had heard the word of truth. They had heard the gospel of salvation. They had believed and had been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And we might ask, how were they sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, you know, it's very fortunate. You can read in Scripture how that happened. In Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus for the very first time, and he found there some disciples. Which is you know, always a shock when a missionary goes out to some place and they, and they find disciples. I mean, there are disciples here. We never knew there were disciples here. Well, there were. But there was a bit of a problem with them. And he found them and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they answered, no, we haven't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And then Paul asked them, well, into what were you baptized? And here we find that they had been baptized in John's baptism. Somebody went off with the Gospel of John, the Baptist, the Baptist Gospel, with a baptism of repentance into the world. And so Paul's response is to do the only thing that he can think to do, the only thing that would be right to do, is to baptize them. So he baptizes them, and afterward he lays his hands on them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. This is extremely important because here in Ephesians, Paul makes reference to this, that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit being in them a guarantee of their inheritance until they should acquire possession of it. This relates directly to the virtue of hope. For hope does not lie in wishful thinking, but in the guarantees of God. In the evidence of God's promises. Paul is in effect saying that all the riches of heaven, all the riches of eternal union with Christ, this adoption, this redemption, this forgiveness, has already been given to them. Why? How? In verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul states that the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, is worked in the very work of raising Jesus from the dead and seating Him at the right hand. How is it that God's righteousness, how is it that God's greatness is shown? It's by the work of raising Jesus from the dead and seating Him at the right hand. But Paul is not content to just leave this alone as a category by itself. He goes on further. 
In chapter 2, Paul will say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You might remember Romans chapter 6 today. As many of you who were baptized into Christ have been baptized also into His death. Which is to say that the Christian being raised with Christ in the sacrament of baptism has been included in this reality. The reality of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. In chapter 5, Paul will even go a step further in his discussion of the profound mystery of marriage. He will say that what Jesus Christ does for His church is that He gives Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Ephesians is thick with this deeply baptismal, deeply sacramental understanding of how it is that you and I become, or more appropriately for many of us, became a people of hope. We were washed. We were sanctified. We were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. We were adopted by being buried with Him in His death and being raised and seated in the heavenly places. If you catch nothing else this morning, simply catch this, that the means which God uses to set apart a people for Himself, the means which He uses to sanctify, to make us saints, is not our doing. It is the saving death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the abundant grace therein. But it is not simply a matter of having this, of this having happened. It has to happen to us. It's not enough for us simply to say, well, 2,000 years ago, this thing happened. Pretty great. I don't know anything about it personally, but it happened and that's good. No! It has to happen to us. Think about what Paul says in Galatians. Not, I know that Christ was crucified with me. What does he say? I have been crucified with Christ and therefore it is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me in the life which I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. There is a relationship, a deep relationship between grace and hope. The church's teaching on grace is not just the idea that God is willing to overlook our faults, to turn a blind eye to sin, to throw up His hands and say, well, there's nothing can be done about these animals. So I either have to kill them, which I don't want to do, or I just have to kind of deal with it. Learn to live with it. Those miserable sinners. No. No. The church holds, the scriptures hold, that God actually does something in us about sin and ignorance, drawing our natures to perfection and sanctity, by not only us drawing us to faith, but drawing us to holiness. In fact, this is what we celebrate on this day, that God has seen fit 
not to simply cover over a sinful people, but to actually sanctify, to actually work in such a way as to show that the powers of darkness are on the ropes. That's what we celebrate on All Saints Day. You know, that whole bit yesterday, dressing up in costumes and little kids running around, you know, and some of those costumes are absolutely horrifying. You know, the tradition of that is to make fun of Satan. It's a mockery of evil. That's what it is. And what better mockery of evil is there than a saint? This is the joy of this day. It shows us the victory of grace. This victory wrought on the cross, this victory wrought in the resurrection. And it teaches us to hope in life which is ours by grace. And this is where we get to the heart of this hope of which Paul speaks. It is to say that hope refers to something which is a possession of the Christian. A treasure which we hold. A substance that endures even when everything else is falling apart. This is what we see so clearly in the saints. This enduring substance. Benedict wrote once wrote an entire encyclical about hope, and you should read it. But I just want to give you this little gem today. For us who contemplate these figures, the saints, their way of acting and living is de facto a proof that the things to come, the promise of Christ, are not only a reality that we await, but a real presence. He is truly the philosopher and shepherd who shows us what life is and where it is to be found. Think about the martyrs for a moment. What is so common among the martyrs? What do they do? What do they say when they're going to their deaths? They look around and they say, are we not already dead? You think you can kill us? We're dead. We've died. Our hope is not in a better life. Our hope is in God. Last week I spoke of Jesus Christ as the wise philosopher king who knows the way and can show us the way to be a people of love. All of that is true. But today I want to point you to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who leads us in the way of sanctity. On Friday, Ellen and I watched the wonderful film by Terrence Malick, A Hidden Life. If you have not seen this movie yet, get there tonight. <laughs> Go today. Watch immediately. There's a scene when a painter who paints biblical scenes on the walls of churches is talking about not having the courage or ability to paint Jesus as he really is. His paintings give comfort, but not holiness of life. He says, we create admirers. We do not create followers. And I think he says something like, someday I'll get around to painting the real Jesus. I can't do it yet. And this is the profound mystery at the heart of the Christian life, that being joined to the person of Jesus Christ, who has not only defeated death, but has been raised to the right hand of the Father, all that is His becomes ours. The divine life becoming our life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To take on His life as ours. To count our life such as it was, the old life, as nothing but to take on this new life, the very life of God. 
This, beloved, is at the heart of what it means to be a saint, to be one who has been joined to Jesus, to be one who has been made a partaker of the divine nature. And such is the case for everyone who has been joined to Jesus in the waters of baptism. A few years ago, I got to go to Assisi with Moira, and we visited the baptismal font in the cathedral in Assisi where Francis himself was baptized, and I stuck my hand into the font. And it was this incredible thing because I thought, Goodness, I never thought of him as coming from somewhere. But here it is. To see the place where Francis himself became a child of God. It was a thing that had to be realized in greater and greater degrees throughout his life. But our Anglican Catechism puts it so clearly about what happens in baptism. The child is asked, this is the old catechism, what is your name? The child responds with his name. When did you get this name? on the day of my baptism. What happened when you were baptized? And the child states this. I was made a member of Christ, a child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. In this sacrament, what is imparted is this, a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness. Today, several children of our parish become what they are not now, children of grace. The reality is that every saint of the church had the very same beginning, and it was in this beginning that their great hope began as well. One of the things that we forget, especially as Americans, we are always living in the shadow of the Great Awakening, is the church has taught that all of the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, are given in their fullness in the sacrament of baptism not in some sort of conversion moment. Now, that might be true that God gives you faith, hope, and love on the day you're converted, But the church has always taught that you absolutely receive it on the day of your baptism. You and I cannot manufacture such things. They are gifts from God. Thomas Aquinas held that when someone is baptized, not only is the soul freed from the guilt of original sin, but this cleansing is bound up with renovation by the Holy Spirit. So one must not only be uh, freed from the guilt of sin, but also renovated. Restored to a higher state. I and mean, I really want you to get this difference. This is really important. I'm going to stop for a little bit and get into this. So I've recently been doing work in my kitchen. And, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a renovation. It's not a full renovation, but it's you know, painting cabinets, putting up new backsplash. It looks nicer, right? Now, if I told you, I want to restore my kitchen to exactly the way it was in 1914, what would you say? See, Father, you're crazy. Nobody liked kitchens back then. They were awful. You would say, what do you want? You want an icebox? Of course not. This is why the New Testament doesn't speak of restoring us. But Paul actually uses this word, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What's the word he uses? He uses a word that, that means restored to a higher state, to a better state. This is what the saints show us. Even though difficulty and vulnerability to sin remain in the baptized, of course they do. We all know they do. We believe firmly that God is at work in us, carrying forward His promises, calling us to Himself. Indeed, Martin Luther once, uh, you know, this used to be a Lutheran church, and uh, some wonderful Lutheran roses on that. Uh, frontal that we uh, inherited from the Lutherans. If you want to know more about that, you can Google it. 
But Martin Luther held that there were two kinds of righteousness, both the righteousness that justifies us and the righteousness that sanctifies us. One being necessary, the other one being good and appropriate, but not necessary. I disagree with him there, but it's another conversation for another time. But Martin Luther was once asked, you know, about, about why you should baptize infants. And he said that if the baptism of infants was not the will of God, no person ever baptized as a child would ever become a saint. It's a really interesting argument when you think about it. It's a strange argument, but it's a good one. The idea is, if God thought infant baptism was awful and was against his will, would he ever honor it? How is it that God honors what happens today with these children? He draws them to holiness. He uses us to raise them up to the fullness of the faith, to confess Christ crucified as their own. These gifts have to be fanned into a flame. They must be sustained by the life of obedience, by the life of the church, by the life of prayer, by regular communion, and by the nourishment of the communion of the saints. That, that phrase should be, I mean, it, should, it deserves a sermon all of its own, the communion of saints. It refers directly to the fact that you and I share in a communion and a being as one with all the holy ones of God. What should be said on All Saints Day is this. The property of the saints belongs to you and to me. Why? Because it's all one inheritance. It's an inheritance that is meant to be shared equally, 100% among the heirs. You and me. So if you're tempted to look across the aisle or to another pew and say, oh my, isn't her voice wonderful? I wish I had a voice like that. You've got the voice! Stop complaining! If you say, ah, oh, I wish I had that gift. You have it! It's yours! If you read the lives of Satan, you say, I wish I had their faith. It's yours already! It belongs to you! And this is the thing I want parents and godparents to hear, and all of us. You're going to feel ill-equipped. You're going to feel not up to the task. You're going to feel like, how are we supposed to make Christians out of these kids? Listen, if I didn't think it was possible, they wouldn't be getting baptized. <laughs> but I want you to hear this. That for these children, just as it is for all of us, there will be times and seasons that will put the hope that is in them to the test. Of course there will be. Their convictions will be tried. They will be tempted to lie and tempted to believe those lies. There has never been in recent history, in this country at least, a temptation to believe a lie and to lie as there is now. To lie even about whether or not they're Christians, there will be that lie that they will be induced to tell. But today, we commend them to the rich and lavish mercy of God. That they would be those who live in this world not as aliens and strangers, but as children, as heirs, as inheritors. Yes, even as saints. And we pray that God would constantly build them up in this hope just as we ask that we ourselves would be built up in this hope.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.